0: Over the past few years, I've preached three sermons that were inspired by the scholarship of a man named Jeffrey Kripal. The first was called Mystical Humanism. It's about the intersection of the more objective scientific method with more subjective first-hand spiritual experiences. The second was called Eve Was Framed, the Serpent Was Right, Gnostic Reflections on Religion. And the final was Reflexive Rereadings of Religion. Uh, some of you were part of a class I taught here on Tuesday nights called Comparing Religions Coming to Terms, and that sermon of, about reflexive rereadings, sort of like the mirror that Laura was talking about. If there are my grammar nerds that are out there, the reflexive case is like myself. So it's that, it's that piece that looks back on you and says, what part of who I am and my social location is affecting how I interpret this experience, spiritual or otherwise? Kripal is a religion professor at Rice University in Houston, and one of my favorite contemporary religion scholars. But I'm bringing him up today because he has some areas of research that overlap with one of his colleagues, April DeConick, who is the chair of the religion department at Rice. And my sermon today is inspired by DeConick's new book, The Gnostic New Age: How a Countercultural Spirituality Revolutionized Religion from Antiquity to Today. And I'd like to invite you to consider some of the important connections between ancient Gnosticism, our UU transcendentalist ancestors, and Unitarian Universalism today. To share just a little bit of Deconic's story, in 1982, she was entering college and planned to be a nurse. But that same year, her mother handed her a book that she had just finished reading and said, you know... I think you'll uh, be interested in this. Uh, It was a new book. It had just been published. It was titled, The Other Gospels. Gospels that had never made it into the New Testament. Unknown sayings of Jesus, the cover read. Her mother was right. Deconic was intrigued. And she was particularly struck by the third verse of the Gospel of Thomas, which she had never heard of previously, that said, the kingdom of God is not only outside of you, it is inside of you. And when you come to know yourself, you will be known, and you will realize that it is you who are sons of the living Father. But if you will not know yourself, you will dwell in poverty, and it is you who are that poverty. Deconic wanted to know more about what was this perspective on religion and spirituality which taught you to know yourself and to seek for the divine within or risk living an impoverished life. In her quest to learn more, she next found Elaine Pagels' book, The Gnostic Gospels, which had been published three years earlier in 1979. You may remember when that sort of came onto the scene. It made a lot of headlines. I see a few hands. Pagels was one of the first um, scholars to write a book that was scholarly and accessible and popular about the Gnostic texts that had been discovered in 1945 near Nag Hammadi, Egypt. Uh, soon afterward, DeConic found James Robinson's 1977 book, The Nag Hammadi Library in Egypt, which is a primary source translation of the text themselves. So right in, in 1982, when she was coming into college, was just right around when this new consciousness was rising about this uh, Gnostic scholarship. Because for almost 2,000 years of Christian history prior to 1945, most Christians only had access to Orthodox Christian writings against Gnosticism. So we had some texts, you know, some quotes of Orthodox, but they were quotes that had been cherry-picked to then prove why the Gnostics were wrong. Uh, then suddenly in 1945, we were able to read what the Gnostics had to say about themselves. And scholars have increasingly come to see since that time that there was not a simple, direct, unbroken line of succession from Jesus to Peter all the way down to Pope Francis. According to that traditional view, any alternative perspective to that allegedly unbroken arrow was just deviant views, right, that were breaking off from this genuine, uh, legitimate arrow. It turns out uh, the truth, as it usually is, is a lot messier and more complex than that. The orthodox perspective was merely one among many groups competing against one another to be considered a legitimate extension of the Jesus movement. And I'm tempted to go into a lot more detail here, but I've already done that in a previous sermon that's in our online sermon archive titled Lost Christianities and Banned Questions About the Bible. For now, I'll say just a little more to emphasize the huge shift that comes from reading what a group has to say about itself as opposed to what others say about it. Now, occasionally I'm really impressed and really admire people who present their opponents in the most charitable light and then try to debunk their position anyway as opposed to what most people do most of the time, which is to present their opponents in the least charitable light and then seek to knock down that straw man. Uh, So consider, for example, if the only access you had to the outside world was Fox News. That's essentially the position we were in prior to 1945 when the Gnostic texts were discovered near Nag Hammadi. We only had the Fox News version of Gnosticism. So as a college freshman in 1982, when DeConick was first reading these newly released paradigm shifting books about Gnosticism by top scholars, she began to realize that some, uh, as she saw it, that some of those previous conceptions of Gnosticism were still um, unduly influencing some of the stereotypes, how that people were bringing those prejudices to their reading of the text instead of reading what the text said for themselves. They were saying things like, oh, the Gnostics were unorganized and they were anti-ritual, and she was like, that's not what the text says, that the opposite seemed to be the case, that the Gnostic texts explicitly described rituals, for example, of cultivating intense religious experience through spiritual transformation, and they were quite organized um, following guru-type leaders. This realization was a turning point for Deconic. It led her to pursue a PhD in Near Eastern Studies at the University of Michigan, and then on the other side of you know, earning her bona fides of being able to fully pursue um, a scholarly interpretation of Gnosticism. As it turns out, long before Marx was condemning religion as the opiate of the masses, the Gnostics were questioning the ways that much of conventional re- um, religion has been used often to just prop up and perpetuate the status quo. In contrast, Gnostic spirituality was all about transcending uh, conventional conceptions through ritualized first-hand experiences of unions with the sacred, union with the divine, with the numinous, that was out beyond mere ideas about God, these existential experiences. Uh, think about the difference between uh, writing a dissertation about apples, having never actually eaten an apple, and then taking a bite of that apple for the first time. I, I use apple intentionally, right? There's a heavy connotation there in the history of religion that I'll say more about. Uh, Gnosticism comes from the Greek word to know. So we have you know, a silent K. We have knowledge, right? Because the Gnostics had Gnosticism. A lot. They had a silent G, so we have a silent K because it... Derives from there, so Gnosticism gives us our word "knowledge," uh, and it was about Gnosticism was about attaining special knowledge about reality through firsthand experiences. So, to cultivate a state of ecstasy, the rituals were often extensive; they were highly participatory. To give you just one example, um, think about for those of you uh, who have any familiarity with the Christian tradition of um, water immersion baptism—that one of the Gnostic rituals—you would go; you wouldn't just come on a Sunday morning and be baptized. Once there was an all-night-long, sleep-deprived chanting, uh, anointings, various things, and throughout the various night, you actually baptized 22 different times. So it was this really elaborate, and so you could see how ecstatic experiences—you could get a little trippy somewhere around uh, in there. So Gnostics claimed to have discovered in their own first-hand experience a much more powerful unifying spirituality beyond the God described in many places in the Bible. There were some parts of the Bible they liked, there were others that they didn't like. Many Orthodox Christian leaders understandably perceived this as a threat. They were terrified of people um, questioning religious hierarchy based on their first-hand experiences. They were like, no, just do what I say, right? Uh, To give just one example of the anti-Gnostic polemics in the late 2nd century, an Orthodox Christian bishop named uh, Irenaeus wrote a very uh, influential five-volume series of books called Against the Heresies, and Gnosticism was one of these books that he was writing against. And to be clear, the Gnostics were most assuredly heretics. But as you may know, that word heretic comes from the Greek word heresis, simply meaning to choose. It just means you're a chooser. You choose for yourself, right? As opposed to um, just believing what the Orthodox um, tell you to believe. Uh, so, in that spirit, Unitarian Universalism is sometimes known as a chosen faith that you choose for yourself. In the ancient world, part of why the Gnostics were so threatening to orthodoxy is that they did use the Bible against the orthodox. They interpreted it in different ways. They pointed to passages such as Genesis 3 where God is described literally as, quote, walking through the Garden of Eden and calling out for Adam and Eve who were hiding from him behind some shrubbery, right? And the Gnostics were like that's absurd. That's your God? God like walks through the garden and you can hide from God? So they were, they, you know, they said that just sounds like a human. That sounds like a fake God that's fooling you and just tricking you into um, supporting them. So they said that's distinct from our experience of a God that would be beyond that, that they called the ground of all being. They pointed also to all the times that the God of the Bible is capricious, petty, jealous, even genocidal at points, killing large numbers of people for various reasons, or described as having done that, of course. Whereas the biblical God punishes Adam and Eve for eating of the, quote, tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the Gnostics saw that transgressive act as salvific. They admired the serpent. They said, listen to that serpent uh, who tells Eve in Genesis 3 that if she eats the fruit, quote, you will not die, your eyes will be opened, and you will become like God, like that lesser God, you know, that, that you know that so that we're trying to keep you in the the Orthodox are just trying to keep you in submission to that lesser God. You need to become like that lesser God, having special knowledge, so that you can then get beyond that to the true uh, experience of, of unity. Indeed, some of the Gnostics were known as Sethians because they identified with Adam and Eve's third son Seth, after Cain and Abel. Seth is the only early character in the Bible who neither interacts with nor worships Yahweh. So long before the hippies of the 1960s, the Gnostics were developing a counterculture, which scholars have described as any figure or movement that privileges non-intellective knowledge and personal visions of truth over cultural constructions of knowledge. But I don't want to jump straight from the Gnostics to the hippies. Deconic has traced four other major Gnostic awakenings during the medieval period through groups such as the Palencians, the Bogomils, and the Cathars that were looking again to their own experience rather than just merely the teachings of the Catholic Church. And, uh, ju- and just as the Renaissance was triggered by a rediscovery of Greco-Roman philosophy and culture, there was a rediscovery in that same time period of some of the Gnostic Texts, not the Nag Hammadi ones, but other ones that led to a Gnostic reawakening during the Renaissance. A third major reawakening happened in the 19th century through some of our transcendentalist forebears and others, so Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller, uh, Henry David Thoreau, as they began reading widely in the world's religious traditions as well as being attentive to their own firsthand experience. Consider just the opening paragraph of Emerson's breakthrough book, Nature. He wrote, our age is retrospective. Instead of looking forward at what's right below our eyes, he's like, we're always looking back. We're retrospective. We, it builds on sepulchers, uh, Emerson wrote. It builds on burial grounds, right? Burial grounds, sepulchers of the fathers. It writes biographies about other people's lives instead of your lives. It writes histories about other groups instead of the group you're a part of. It writes criticism, evaluations of what other people think. The foregoing generations, Emerson said, beheld God and nature face to face, we through their eyes. Why should not we also enjoy an original relation to the universe? To you know as as Wittgenstein later said, don't think look. Don't think what you know look out and see what is really in front of you. Emerson continues, why should we not have a poetry and philosophy of insight and not of tradition, and a religion by revelation to us and not a history of revelation to them? Uh, so He continues, the sun shines today also. There is more wool and flax in the fields. There are new lands, new people, new thoughts. Let us demand our own works, our own laws, our own worship. This third Gnostic awakening can be traced all the way through landmark modern figures like Carl Jung, and finally we can trace a fourth Gnostic awakening starting with the discovery of the Nag Hammadi texts in 1945 and continuing on through today that have allowed uh, people to be more public. So you have like Jung, for example, if you Google Jung's Red Book, that was actually sequestered by his family, his journaling and writing about his spiritual experiences until just a few years ago because they were afraid it was too scandalous for people to handle, and now in this sort of fourth Gnostic awakening. They're like, oh, people can handle it now. It's, it's safe to publish it. So polls continue to show today the growing influence of the so-called spiritual but not religious who are seeking authentic spiritual experiences, not merely secondhand theology. And in this day and age, to me, one of the promises of movements like Unitarian Universalism is to cultivate communities that can be both spiritual and religious, communities of people that can support one another on their individual and collective spiritual journeys and can honor the firsthand religious experiences within and the diversity thereof within community. Uh, indeed, in good transcendentalist fashion, the first of our six sources is direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures which moves us to a renewal of the spirit and an openness to the forces that create and uphold life. We balance that, of course, with our fifth source, humanist teachings, which counsel us to heed the guidance of reason and the results of science and warn us against idolatries of the mind and spirit. So we have a balance within our six sources. But before concluding, there's one other aspect of DeConnick's book that I particularly appreciate. She uh, explores some of the ways that Gnostic themes are particularly present in many popular films today. So we could look at Star Trek The Final Frontier. We could look at Avatar. We could look at Aronofsky's pie. Not pie like blueberry pie, pie like 3.14, right? More like Kabbalah that uh, Scott was referring to. To briefly describe these three examples in more detail, um, take the film The Matrix. Uh, It's a classic Gnostic scene where the protagonist Neo, that's of course an anagram, you you move those letters of Neo around and you get one, right? So that's a beginning. Neo is offered a choice by a stranger named Morpheus. He's told, you take the blue pill and the story ends. You wake up in your bed and you believe what you want to believe, or you take the red pill, red like an apple, offered to Eve, right? You stay in Wonderland, and I will show you just how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, Morpheus says, all I'm offering is truth, knowledge, gnosis, right? He doesn't say the knowledge knows his part, but that's that's the undercurrent. After swallowing the red pill, biting of the apple, Neo wakes up, only to discover himself suffocating in this goo lined pod. Some of you may remember this scene. He's like an infant struggling out of the womb. Uh, Neo pushes through the fluids, and then Morpheus literally cuts the cords. Right? He's this initiate facing a new reality and the terms of his new birth. As he seeks to figure out what's going on, some of you remember, may remember what he does. The first thing he does is vomit, (laughs) right? He's so overwhelmed. He's greeted by Morpheus and company and says, welcome to the real world. So that scene is classic Gnosticism, discovering a deeper reality beneath the simulacrum that you thought was reality. Another modern Gnostic parable is the Jim Carrey film, The Truman Show, just as the ancient Gnostics discovered cracks in the Bible, these places where they're like, that doesn't quite make sense. I think that's pointing us to a larger reality behind it. Truman, too, starts to see cracks in his reality. The first, as you may remember, a a skylight falls from the sky, I mean a um, spotlight falls from the sky and almost kills him. And he picks up the spotlight and notices that it has the name of a constellation on it, right? And he's like right? That's weird. Uh, and so and he starts to notice things, like how people seem to always like, go past him at the same time, almost like they were actors in a play, and so slowly he starts to put together the pieces that he's actually a reality TV star, and everyone's in on it except him. Discovering the truth allows him to escape the TV set that he thought was the whole world and enter into actual reality. A final example is the film Pleasantville. The movie, this movie is particularly Gnostic because the mother in the show, Betty, begins to awaken from black and white reality. She thinks seeing black and white is all there is to see and all there is to experience. She awakens into the full world of color as she becomes more conscious of her sexuality and realizes she's been living by a lot of unnecessary rules. Likewise, Mr. Johnson, the owner of the local soda shop, realizes that what really brings him joy is painting. And he turns from black and white into color as he takes some brushes and begins to paint um, some nude scenes in a a Cubist style of Betty uh, on the window of the local soda shop. And this is, of course, quite related to Gnosticism, uh, so that the, uh, the Hebrew word for to know, so we talk about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that Hebrew word there is yada, And so that biting of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the same word for Adam knew Eve and bore Cain, right? So that we talk about carnal knowledge. So, that's that, so knowledge and sexuality coming into consciousness, these are all deeply related things and deeply enmeshed into Gnostic rituals and theology. To know someone biblically, right? All this is related. Then and now, Gnosticism is an invitation to question second-hand religion that's been handed down to you and just say, just believe this because I told you so. It is a challenge to test religious claims in the crucible of your first-hand religious experience. As I said in a sermon a few years ago, it's like it's the difference between being a Buddhist and becoming a Buddha, right? becoming an awakened one versus just following, um, believing something that happened 2,500 years ago. It's a challenge to test in the crucible of your own first-hand experience critically examined. So in that spirit, I invite you to reflect some on what have you over the years known in your heart, in your mind, that firsthand and it gave you knowledge that something you had been told is true secondhand might not be so, or it could just be a confirmation that all of a sudden something that you had been told became existentially real for you as you experienced it firsthand for yourself. I invite you to hold any memories of those experiences in your heart as we sing together our hymn. Turn in your teal hymnal to 1008 when our heart is in a holy place.